We have a wonderful passage to go through this morning, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and this is on Christian marriage. And I titled this lesson, Christian Marriage Before the Watching World. So the theme as I understand it is, husband and wives are called to live out their God-ordained roles in marriage, following the example of Christ, who gave himself sacrificially for us, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I think there's a little bit of feedback. Oh, good deal. Okay. All right, I'm hearing voices back here. (laughs) So this is a wonderful passage in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and a passage that describes how believing wives and husbands must conduct themselves in marriage And this section ties back to what I taught last time, Peter's command in chapter 2, verse 12, that we must, and let me read that verse for you, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. So you'll remember... Oh, yeah, that's fine. That is fine. So they're going to move me up here. Because of that. Great. Okay. Hey, is that better? That's a lot better. Thank you. Yeah, it's still just a little bit, but that's better. Okay, good. So I'm way back here now teaching you guys. So you'll remember, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 12, and you'll remember that following that command, Peter described in detail what our good deeds before the Gentiles should look like, because that's his emphasis, how we should live out our lives before the watching world. So, as we learned last week from Chris, he talked about in chapter 2 that we ought to be in submission to ordinances and those in governing authority over us, our rulers, those who, who we rule are under our, their rule. He talked about how we ought to be submission slaves to masters, and Chris talked about how that might affect us in our relationship with our employers, in fact. But today he drills it down. Today he comes to the intimate relationship of marriage and how we should live that out before the watching world. So in these verses, Peter instructs his readers how they ought to conduct themselves in the institution of marriage. So the word conduct that Peter will use several times in this passage is, in fact, the same word he used in chapter 2, verse 12, where he tra- which translated conduct or behavior. Our marriages are an important, visible testimony to the world regarding the reality of our commitment to Christ. And we know that's true. That's why I titled this lesson, Christian Marriage Before the Watching World, because the watching world is out there looking at us, looking at our marriages, how our marriages are different from them. So we know this, that after our union with Christ, there is no more sacred union on this earth than that of marriage between a man and a woman. This is the living example of the relationship between Christ and his church. And that's Ephesians 5. And we'll read Ephesians 5 in just a moment. The instructions Peter delivers in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, were contrary to the spirit of his age and certainly our current age in several respects. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Hang on a minute. We're having teacher adjustment here, so we're in good shape. So in 
This section we're going to study today, Peter describes several things. He describes the sacred union of marriage itself, which is becoming more novel in our current culture where people simply live together, right? Where people talk about fluidity of partners and multi-partner relationships and all those things that are going on out there in the world. That's not in view here because that's not biblical, right? He also talks about marriage between a man and a woman with no other options given out there, right? And that too, we know, is very much in the face of current culture and the current moral evolution. The other thing that Peter's going to teach us in this passage is the command for, wet, for wives to submit to their husbands, which also itself is counter to current culture. And husbands, lest you forget, Peter's also going to command that husbands live with their wives with biblical understanding and honoring them as they submit to their leadership and headship. Men are to give themselves sacrificially in marriage as Christ loved the church, not seeking their own gratification as the primary end in marriage. So let's talk about a few important things. We're going to dive into those verses here in just a sec, but... In Christian marriage, there is complete equality in spiritual standing before God for the husband and the wife. God has established headship for the husband and submission to that headship for the wife. And there are many passages in Scripture which teach this. And I've given you some references. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Peter will teach us what that submission should look like in marriage and how husbands should lead their wives in that submission. So let's talk about what headship means. We understand headship to mean place under another's leadership in the economy of God's plan. In fact, there's a similar function here in the church where members, we're called to submit to the leadership of the elders, right? Though all are equal, all Christians in the body are equal in standing before God. Nonetheless, we have a functional submission to the elders who rule the church. There is no inferiority in the relationship in marriage. This is the structure, the economy, however, that God has given to marriage. In Peter's time, as now, some women were converted and found themselves married to an unbelieving husband who, in fact, rejects the gospel. How should a Christian wife conduct herself in such a union, and what should her expectation be for her husband? So this was a common problem then, and it's a common problem now. Can there be hope for the godly woman in that kind of marriage if she finds herself in a union with an unbelieving husband? Peter has answers to those questions, and we're going to consider those this morning. Even in the marriage union where husband and wife are both redeemed Christians, and that's the hope, isn't it, that both are redeemed and serve the Lord, there will always be the daily struggle with sin and sanctification, 1 John 1, 9. We know that, right? We're redeemed, but we're sinners. And that comes out in the daily struggle of marriage, doesn't it? So it's in the day-to-day relationships, right? Things like finances, children, job choices, living choices. As we get older, how we take care of our parents, all of those things are the day-to-day struggles that even in a Christian marriage, we wrestle with because we're what? We're redeemed sinners. So Peter's going to lay out a lot of marriage principles for us in this passage, but I think we have to understand these are not a formula that lead to, quote, marital bliss and will allow us to conquer all sin and all struggles. His words, these words in this passage, however, do set out the path of holiness that God delights in and that we should follow in marriage. 
As redeemed sinners, which we all are, our goal in marriage, as in all of life, must be to what? Follow Christ. Follow Christ in holiness every day, right? We live to worship him and bring him glory in all we do, including in our marriages. The hope is that we follow Christ in holiness. We will be transformed into the image of Christ and that will become the core strength of our marriage as husband and wife mutually submit to Christ in marriage. I like this quote from a good friend of ours who was the former teaching elder at Community Bible Chapel in Richardson, Bob Deffenbaugh. And Bob said this about this, about Christian marriage and our goal. The Christian's ultimate goal should not be to have a, quote, good marriage, because kind of, that's what the world talks about, right? We, well, we've got a good marriage. It's not to have a good marriage. It's to have a godly marriage. We should be godly in our marriage. A godly marriage is one in which at least one partner exhibits Christ in the marriage to the glory of God. The Lord Jesus came as a suffering servant and thus became the model for both wives and husbands as for every other saint. A godly marriage displays the excellencies of God to a lost world. We're going to talk about that. Resulting in glory and praise to him, it also provides an opportunity for a living witness to the grace and glory of God and the possibility of salvation to those who are lost. And that's a big part of what Peter's going to teach wives this morning about being a witness to their husbands. So let's read these passages. I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and I'm also going to read the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 because I'm going to reference Ephesians 5 frequently this morning. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Ephesians 5. Now, let me read this passage. Wives, I'm starting verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, 
but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So that's a critical foundational passage. Again, we're going to come back to this because it ties in so well with what Peter has to say to both wives and husbands in the marriage relationship. So I've broken this passage down, 1 through 7, into four sections. The first two verses I call the precept, the precept of submission. Verses 3 and 4, the past practice. That is the historical practice of women of old. Then I'm going to talk about or the practice of submission, that is the practice of submission women we see in their lives. And then I'm going to talk about the past pattern of submission, that is the historical practice of women such as Sarah. And then husbands, we're going to talk about the sacrificial steward. We're going to talk about what it means to stewardship our wives' submission and what it means to sacrifice on their behalf. So let's look at verse 1 and the command for wives to be submissive to their husbands. So back to that verse. In the same way, you wives be subject to your own husbands. Peter begins this verse with one word in the Greek, which is translated variously, whatever translation you have, in the same way in the New American Standard. Some of the translations say likewise. So what is Peter referring? When Peter says likewise as he starts this passage, what do you think Peter is referring to? Anybody? What's that? The same way, right. The same way as what, though? Christ, I heard it here, as Christ. That's right. And what verses just preceded this passage in chapter 3? 21 through 25. That's right. And what is contained in those verses? Christ is our example of how he submitted himself to the cross, to God the Father. That's right. Did you hear that? Christ, how he submitted himself to God our Father his father in submission. And we have to always remember this, son of God, son of man, fully equal in the Trinity, fully equal in divine essence, yet he took on flesh and humbled himself in submission to the father's will for the purpose of our redemption. So spot on. And what do we learn in those verses? That he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return, right? While suffering, what did he do? No threats. That's exactly right. No threats came from his mouth, even through all the suffering he was going through. And he did what? How did he do this? He entrusted himself to who? To the Father. That's right. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The Lord entrusted himself to the Father who knew the Father judges righteously. Remember that because that's a great principle for wives as you're dealing with husbands in marriage <clears throat> to continually commit yourself to the Father. And then we learn about all the Lord did for us, how he bore our sins in his body on the cross for the purpose. And what a great passage for this morning. For the purpose that he, that we might, what? Die to sin and live to righteousness. What a core important principle as we look at marriage, that every day we as believers might die to sin and live to righteousness, that that might be the fuel of our marriages. For he has healed us by his stripes. So in this immediate context, Peter is reminding wives, and he's gonna remind you husbands in verse seven, so don't forget this, that word likewise is gonna come back for you guys too, okay? And me, all right? 
He's going to remind us of the example of Christ's suffering sacrificially for us. His example instructs us that submission, it may bring suffering, but we should entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously just like our Lord did. He suffered silently, entrusting himself to the will of the Father. This is very important as we consider that submission by wives to their husbands may involve suffering, even if married to a believer. So let's talk about what that suffering for wives may look like. If there's a first principle I want to talk about, a first important principle about what cannot be allowed in suffering in marriage. So we must understand that physical suffering by a wife or her children at the hands of an abusive husband is not allowed. This is in violation of the law and societal protections that God has established and the commands Peter has already given us in chapter 2, right? Um, Verse 13 through 15, where we are to submit to rulers and governors who punish evildoers. So Paul had a lot to say about this also in Romans 13. So I think it's worth me reading just a few verses of Romans 13 so that we understand this because this is a big issue in submission in marriage. Paul said in Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil." So we have to understand this. God has placed the civil magistrates there to protect us. And a physically abusive husband is in violation of the laws God has established. They are, in fact, at that point, evildoers. And the wife must protect herself and the children. And I just say that's why we have 911 and we have police who protect us. And I think that's an important first principle as we talk about submission, that physical abuse is not allowed in a marriage. Well, let's just talk about it other forms of suffering that a wife may go through. Because this was important in Peter's day because as wives became Christians, many times they became Christians and their husband did not. And their husband, the wife was expected to follow the religion of the husband. And divorce was easy in those days. The husband could divorce the wife basically for no cause. Um, so in the situation where a wife is married to an unbelieving husband, think about the things that may happen. Some of you may know that because you may be in this situation, Right. She may find that, and she probably will, that he continually rejects her faith in Christ. He may even mock her or think about the day-to-day life. He may bring ungodly entertainment into the home. He may continually curse and use foul language. He may make terrible financial decisions. He may be a gambler and all the things of the world that go on. Think about the wife, though, the godly wife. While she finds her deepest joy in the fellowship of the saints and godly living, he doesn't. And the wife should not expect him to do so, right? He cannot share in the joy of her salvation since the mind of the unbeliever is hostile to God. We know that. Apart from the electing love of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in opening the dead heart, there is no hope that an unbelieving spouse will ever share with her in the intimacy of joy in the Holy Spirit. Her faith may continually draw a hostile response. However, Peter doesn't leave us without hope, does he? She lives in hope and prayers to her faithful God that he will save her husband. And she submits to him as Peter commands for that testimony. So that's the situation some of you may be in. 
Peter's going to talk a lot about that, about your behavior and how you can be a testimony to your husband. So let's just talk about the best situation where the husband and wife are both Christians. Nonetheless, even though we're both Christians, we're still subject to daily growth and sanctification, putting off the old man and putting on the new man and growing in biblical wisdom and thinking and working that out in our lives. So even as Christians, and I'll tell you, it doesn't matter whether you're 33 or 63, we struggle with these things every day, don't we? Because we're all in that process until the Lord takes us home of sanctification. So even in that situation, a wife may have suffering. Her Christian husband may make some bad financial decisions. And uh, so even in that scenario, there may be suffering in the marriage. So Peter says for wives to be submissive to your own husbands. This command by Peter is for wives to be in submission or place themselves under the authority of their husbands. We talked about headship. The wife comes under the leadership, that is the headship of their husband, unless they are asked to do things contrary to God's word. Acts 5, what did Peter teach us in Acts 5 with respect to that? We ought to obey God rather than men. So there are situations where your husband may not allow you to do things that obey God. He may try to keep you from obeying God, but women should go to church. They should live moral lives. They should serve Christ and raise their children in this way. Wives are not under, Peter also tells us, under the leadership of other husbands other than their own spouse. Wives are, however, subject to the elders in the church, but in the same way as all members of the church. Here's the glorious thing. When husband and wife are both believers, they are fellow heirs of life. That is, co-heirs before the throne of God. And we're going to talk about this in verse 7. Husbands will be commanded to live with their wives in light of this truth and treat them accordingly. Understanding this, wives, understanding this, you're a co-heir. You're a co-inheritor of the grace of life, of glory before God. Understanding this, the command for submission is a headship role assigned by God to husbands and wives. Wives who bring themselves into submission under the leadership role of their husbands. And again, we could come back to that Ephesians 5 passage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. There's that headship role. As Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. So let's just come back again, this submission role, and think about Christ. Let's come back what we talked about, chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, who Christ was in perfect submission to the Father. He's our great example, perfect equality. He's the creator, perfect equality in the Trinity. Nonetheless, in his role, as Savior, as Son of Man, he submitted himself to the Father, and he delighted always to do the Father's will. So let's talk a little bit about the purpose of submission. Why does God have women do this? And what does Peter say about that? Second half of verse 1 and verse 2, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what is this purpose of submission? What is Peter telling us? Why should women submit? What might happen in that marriage with their unbelieving husband? Yeah, their husband might be saved. They live out the gospel before their husbands. So 
Peter makes it clear, I think, in these, in these verses that when he says, even if any of them are disobedient, he's talking about both unbelieving and believing uh, husbands for the wife. In this context, submission for a wife married to an unbelieving husband occurs in this hope, like Wade said, that she will be a witness to him and that he might be saved. That is, that he might be won over. Peter also assumes that the wife will have shared the gospel with her unbelieving husband who has rejected it, right? She is commanded to win him over, not by continual words preaching to him, but how? We talked about the church before the watching world. By living out a godly life before him day by day in all that she does. And this is the great challenge, you know. It's, it's, it's a challenge enough in Christian marriages, isn't it? When we have disagreements and things ha- happen in marriage. But think about in the marriage to an unbeliever. This is a huge challenge that she lives this out day by day before him. So Peter's going to tell us what this behavior should look like. And he uses these words, chaste and respectful. So when you think about that word chaste with respect to the behavior of a wife, what do you think about? What does that call to mind? Modesty, Modesty, yeah. Purity. They all kind of go together, don't they? It's that pure, and it likely has a strong component of moral purity too. And this might be a temptation to a wife who's married to an unbelieving husband, but Peter calls them to be chaste and pure in all aspects of their behavior. He also says respectful, and this word in the Greek just means to fear. That is that reverent, respectful fear. You know, the Proverbs tell us that what is the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. We fear the Lord. We reverence, we respect him. And this respectful behavior, this fear that women have, is that same reflection, I think, they have of their respect and their reverence to the Lord. That's how they treat their husband, with that same kind of reflective respect for her husband. So adding to this chaste and respectful behavior, Peter's going to go on to describe in greater detail what are the key elements of godliness for a wife in verses 3 and 4. So let me read verses 3 and 4 to you. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So I call this the practice of submission. This is how, not just with that chaste and respectful behavior, but this is how wives live out, how they adorn themselves before their husbands and the world. So in these verses, Peter describes the walk of holiness that delights God. So culture in Peter's day really put a lot of emphasis on elaborate hair braids and jewelry and dresses. It's just not unlike today, right, when you go out in the world and you see all this. It's the same. Culture in the heart really doesn't change very much, does it? But it's the same. So these external manifestations, what do they draw their attention to? Yeah, the physical, right? The external, right? And they're not drawing attention to what? You're always my good answers. To the Lord. To the Lord, that's right. They don't draw attention to Christ, so, but they draw attention to themselves. So chaste and respectful behavior that we just talked about that Peter asked women to do would shun this type of pride, wouldn't it? It would shun this type of focus on themselves and external adornment. These verses also, I think, draw us back to a frequent theme in 1 Peter where Peter talks about 
the perishable and the imperishable because all the external adornment and all of that, that's pretty perishable. And you know what? Men can do the same thing, right? We're not off the hook on this, right? And, and dress and all the things we do, you know? But those are the perishable things. And Peter tells us again and again to focus on the imperishable. I can read you verse, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So focusing on the external adornment is focusing on the perishable, those things that don't last, and not the imperishable excellencies of Christ. So that's the negative, how we shouldn't adorn ourselves. What's the positive? How should women adorn themselves? Let it be the hidden person of the heart. That's the glory, isn't it? That's the beauty. That's how we should adorn ourselves. The hidden person of the heart stands in direct contrast to that showy external dress because what? It's, it's hidden. It's in here, right? It's inside us. It's in our soul. That's in direct contrast to all the stuff we do that we show the world, right? And that hidden beauty, when we talk about perishable or imperishable, what is it? It's imperishable, right? That never goes away. You never outgrow that dress. You never lose that jewelry, right? It's imperishable. It's in your soul and it's in your heart. Any Christian woman, and this is the other glorious thing, as we think about things that might have happened in the church with rich people and poor people and all these things, any Christian woman may cultivate this beauty, this inner spiritual beauty, regardless of her external circumstances. And this is the one that matters, right? This is the beauty that allows us to endure suffering and follows the example of Christ. R.C. Sproul says this, and I love it. He says, your true beauty is the beauty of your soul. Women, that's your true beauty. And that's what Peter is focusing on here in this passage. May that beauty shine for his glory always. The hidden person of the heart, this is kind of a, an interesting word, hidden. It's the Greek word kryptos. So what does that sound like? Kryptos. Cryptic, right. So I say this is the cryptocurrency of spirituality, right? It has its own blockchain, I guess, right? But this is the cryptocurrency of spirituality, true spirituality. The hidden person of the heart is the godly inner man of the believer. And this is true for husbands too. You guys got to listen up, right? We're talking about wives, but this is for you too, right? It's the, it's the godly inner man of the believer where the Holy Spirit resides within us and from where the wellspring of new life in Christ springs. The hidden person grows and flourishes through the power of the Spirit, through daily meditation in the Word, communion with God, and prayer, and walking with Him. And it's that hidden person which is being daily transformed into the image of Christ. And I, I, I just, when I think about this, the inner man, I think often about the words of our Lord in John 7. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And isn't that what you desire for your innermost being is that rivers of living water would flow out of your heart, would flow that everybody would see it and they would drink from that, from your lives. Going back to husbands, that's what Peter wants the husbands to see from the wives, especially in that testimony relationships. Peter is commanding and exhorting the wives, focus on this, let your husband see these rivers of living water coming out of your life. 
So he's going to go on and define this even further. He's going to talk about, again, the imperishable, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Two wonderful attributes that Peter says women should cultivate in their lives for the witness to their husband. Think about gentle. When you think about gentle, I think about our Lord Jesus Christ. I think about Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Also think about Matthew 5, 5, where Jesus said, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, when you think about the Lord, the life of our Lord on this earth, I think about him as a gentle man. I think about him as a kind and compassionate man who could say this, who could say, come to me if you have a heavy yoke, who could bring sinners in and eat with them because he loved them and cared for them. And when you read through the Gospels again and again, he healed people everywhere he went because he had compassion on people, because he cared about people, because he loved them. And this is that gentle, humble spirit before his father. Peter also goes on to say that women should really foster a quiet spirit. So when I think about quietness, I think about that too as kind of the essence of Christianity, right? Because quiet people are those who rest undisturbed. That's really what the word means here, the Greek word. It means to rest, to be undisturbed. That is, they trust in God, and their quietness really reflects their trust in God. They don't scream, they don't shout, they don't get anxious, they don't do all those things that we tend to do, right? They're just very quiet and at peace before God because they know their Savior, they trust in Him, and He is the core and the pillar of their lives, gentle and quiet. And this is, in fact, as Peter goes on to say, precious in the sight of God. God considers many things precious, but most of all, His Son, 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7, He is precious. And I think God considers these qualities precious because they reflect his son. And wives, that's why you should, and husbands, men, you should build this in your lives too. That's why we should do it because it reflects Jesus Christ and our absolute trust and confidence in him. So let's move on to the next section because Peter is now going to encourage women that these commands and these exhortations are nothing new. This has been there from the very beginning. This is the pattern of women in the past, and he's going to use examples of history. So this is the third section, our past pattern of submission, verses 5 and 6. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So there's a couple of important principles Peter will teach us in this, these couple of verses. First, he's going to tell us that the holy women of old, that is, this is nothing new. They hoped in God. They trusted in God. In fact, they hoped in God, and because they hoped in God, they were able to be submissive to their husbands, right? That's the principal foundation, women. Hope in God. Hope in God gives you that ability to trust God in him, that he will deliver you, that he will protect you, that he will care for you, and it allows you to be able to submit to your husbands. And Peter chooses the example of Sarah. So who was Sarah? Abraham's wife. wife. And who was Abraham? Uh, He was uh, 
Yes. You're always my answers. It's so good. <laughs> he is the father of the nation, right? He is the father of the Jewish nation. So in that sense, Sarah could be the matriarch of the Jewish nation. In that sense, she's the leader of all the holy women of old. And Peter says, this is in essence how Sarah lived out her life. Think about this. As we talk about trusting God and the necessity to trust God, and we're going to talk about not having fear, he did. Abraham got called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. He got called pack up everything and move. And they, they lived that kind of life. And Sarah was packing up and moving with Abraham. And all of these things were happening uh, to Sarah. And in fact, the verse that Peter probably references here when he says Sarah uh, called Abraham Lord is in Genesis 18, verse 12. It's the only reference we have where she really called him Lord. But this is where they were given the promise of Isaac. And I could read that verse to you. And it's an interesting verse, <clears throat> Right? Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. So I think the thing we see here is that this was just Sarah's natural response, that Abraham was her Lord, that is, that her husband that she submitted to, that she respected. And this was the pattern of, Abraham, of Sarah's life with respect to Abraham. The other thing I think that's interesting is she said this to herself, but this was really the response of her heart, that her submission to Abraham so I think Sarah is a good example for women to follow. And there are many godly women in the scriptures. We can think of Ruth. We could think of Hannah. We could think of Esther. We could think of Mary. We could think of Elizabeth. We could think of all those godly women who trust in God, able to submit. So that final phrase, not being frightened by any fear. Again, trusting in God with a gentle and quiet spirit and hoping in him for the future will allow you to submit to your husband. It will take away the anxiety, knowing that he is in control, knowing that he is your foundation. So Peter understands the, this pattern of submission to be the pattern of history. Godly women follow these examples throughout the ages. The essence of godliness for a woman, boy, that's a loaded statement, right? <laughs> Here it is, but this is what I think it is. The essence of godliness for a woman is her inner strength in the Lord developing a heart after him that builds the Christ-like virtues of gentleness and quiet rest in his promises. A gentle woman trusts in God's strength. A quiet woman lets the life of Christ in her soul do all the talking. This is a foundation built upon the rock that will carry them through the storms of life and which God will find precious. So if you want God to consider you precious, live like his son. All right, husbands, we're going to finish out the last few minutes. Husbands, you're not off the hook. There's a verse seven. So we're going to turn now to husbands and what I call the sacrificial stewardship. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may, may not be hindered. So why do I call this Stewardship. What is a stewardship? Anybody know? Some of you guys are financial guys. When you steward something, you take, I heard it, you take care of something, right? You have something that's been entrusted to you, something of great value that in fact has been trusted to you. Our Lord used 
the analogy of a steward many times in the scriptures, didn't he? And he had harsh words to say about the unfaithful stewards, right? So husbands, listen up. This is your stewardship, the way you treat your wife. So Peter begins this final verse with that. We're going to come back to that word, likewise. So husbands, Peter calls us back to the example of the suffering of Christ. We're going to be called right back to chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, in relationship to our wives. We are to remember Christ as servant, though son of God and son of man, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Husbands are likewise to serve their wives, though they are in leadership over them. They must see the stewardship they have been given through their godly submission of their wives. We are to love our wives as Christ loved us. So how did Christ love us? Let me me read you a passage, Philippians 2, husbands. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And back to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You have the responsibility to present your wife holy and blameless before the Lord. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So this is the pattern that Peter calls us to follow. So let's talk about a few of the specifics too. Peter says, for us men to live with our wives in an understanding way. First off, that first set of words, live with our wives. The The word literally means that we are commanded to dwell with our lives, literally all of their lives. And this is important, especially in Peter's day, but in this day too, right? Because divorce is like that, right? Men abandon their wives all the time. And this was so common in Peter's day. But Peter commands men, you must dwell with your lives and live with them. Don't abandon them. Live out your life with them. This is a command to marital faithfulness. Men can't live as though they have separate lives. So this is another thing, I think, that we get into that pattern. We can live in the same house, right, and not live with one another in that spiritual sense, right? Husbands, we're commanded to dwell with our lives, and that's more than just sharing a roof together. That means we live out our lives with our wives. That means in every spiritual aspect, we have responsibility to share their life with them. And Peter also goes on to say we need to do this in an understanding way. Literally, the, the text says, according to knowledge. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of natural for us men to understand that Peter's telling us, you got to understand your wife, you got to understand her emotions and her feelings and all those things. That's true. And you got to understand, as he's going to say, she's a weaker vessel physically. We're going to talk about that. But I think there's more to this word knowledge. I think if, if you look at the way Peter uses this word, it's the word that is the root back to Gnosko, it's Gnosin. He, if you look at, say, 2 Peter, for example, let me read you a a verse in 2 Peter. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, 
perseverance and in your perseverance godliness it's the same word so Peter I think means more than just understanding your wife who she is as a woman this is biblical knowledge this is biblical wisdom I think Peter is commanding us husbands that we fill our lives with the knowledge of God's word with all biblical wisdom that we can live with our wives and understand them in that way through the scriptures through biblical wisdom and knowledge what do we have to know too about a woman that she's a weaker vessel and uh, so what do you think Peter means by weaker vessel what's kind of the natural understanding of that of that phrase physically weaker right God made us different didn't he and that's the way God made us and in most cases the husband is physically weaker but what's another way that a wife might in essence be weaker in the marriage relationship not just physically, okay. Jan, I hear it. Emotionally, that's right. What about the position she has put herself into? I think another thing that Peter may have in mind here is she is weaker because she has put herself under your headship and leadership. She has, in submission and command of God, made herself vulnerable to you, husband. She has, in that relationship, made herself, in a sense, weaker and that's part of the stewardship I think men that we have in our wives our wives are a treasure given to us by God and they've placed themselves in submission to our leadership under God and that makes them weaker in that sense so this is something I think we have to understand men we owe them we owe them before God the value of good leadership and headship so that it becomes a joy it becomes a joy for our wives to follow us every day as they walk through this life with us and dwell with us it's a joy it's a joy to get up it's a joy to spend time in the word to pray together that's the kind of leadership we owe them so let's kind of finish this passage up honor Peter says commands us grant honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life how do we honor our wives I want to have a few ideas from you husbands we don't have silence Listen, that's great. Listen to them. Yeah. Speaking well of them, praising them, that's, that's wonderful. Proverbs 31, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, Lord she shall be praised. That's right. Praise your wife. Praise your wife publicly for the things she does in service of the Lord and for who she is. We have that command to present her spotless. That's another way we honor our wives, men, is to present her spotless before the Lord, to nurture her in the study and prayer of the Lord, encourage her, walk in this life with her, raise her children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, find her needs and help her. Because she is... After all, as Peter says, a co-heir. That is, she inherits all of this with us. And when we stand before God, she stands with us. And there is no difference. There is no difference now, uh, husbands. Your believing wife who's with you is a co-heir, equal before God. In God's economy, she has just submitted herself to your leadership. So Peter ends this with a warning, right? What will happen, men, if we don't do this? What does Peter say here in the end? 
your prayers may be hindered. In fact, this may have very practical consequences. It's not that God doesn't hear our prayers, but in that sense of hindering, our prayers may not have the effect. It may cut off our relationship and our close fellowship with God if we don't treat our wives in this way. So let me end, we're almost over, but let me end with a few conclusions. This is a lesson that is packed with a lot of stuff, a lot of important stuff. And let me just kind of make a few conclusions. The cross of Christ and his suffering, we're gonna come back to that again and again. First Peter two, the cross of Christ and his suffering on our behalf is the pattern for godliness and submission in marriage, both for husbands and for wives. We should strive for a holy marriage that daily seeks sanctification. We ought to strive for the best interest of our spouse, husbands for wives and wives for husbands, and the approval of God, even if it means suffering. Submission of the wife to their husbands is a command and applicable even if their husband is not a believer. And we've talked about some of those, the limits of submission. Wives should hope in God that by their Christ-like life, their husband may be led to Christ. And that is the hope in God. Never give up that hope, women. Never give up that hope that by living this out, God may yet bring them to Christ. Submission for men is to Christ. Our submission, first of all, is to him and his example of submission to the Father. Submission to Christ should transform how husbands treat their wives. Men, if we walk with God, we can't but treat our wives as God would have us to treat them. The heart of godliness for a woman is that gentle and quiet spirit that reflects Christ. We see this all through the Gospels, Christ's life. This is the inner strength of absolute trust in God and the peace which enables a woman to endure suffering, especially when married to an unbelieving husband. The heart of godliness for a husband in marriage is Christ-like sacrificial love for his wife. A husband who walks in this way will be building a marriage based on biblical knowledge of the purpose of the wife's submission, her weakness in submission, and his responsibility for stewardship in this relationship. And husbands should never forget that she is a co-heir of eternal life before God. If a husband does not do these things, as we talked about, there may be consequences hindering their relationship with God through their prayers. So I I ended this with a question too, just about prayer. How often do we spend time praying with our wives, men? How often do we do that? That should be a core part every day of our lives. So let's just stop. Are there questions, points you wanted to bring up? We just have a minute or two and Well, let's pray. Let's give God thanks for Resurrection Day. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you that we can say from our hearts, he is risen and know it's true to know that we are risen with you. And Lord, these are challenging words to us because we are redeemed, but we live out this life still dealing with sin day by day and Lord, empower us, strengthen us, build that inner man, build that inner joy in the hidden heart in each of us, that it might flow out of our lives, it might flow in our marriages, it might flow to our children, that we might walk before this world with godly marriages and marriages that honor you, Father. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.